You're listening to an Empavillion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at empavillion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome everyone um, to an absolutely beautiful December evening. I think we're so lucky with this weather tonight. Uh, to the Archi team, evening with speaking to our wonderful winners. So my name's Delia Teschendorf. I'm an architect and an Archi team board member and director in charge of the Archi team awards this year. And I'm joined this evening by recent past Archi team director and architect Fuling Ku. And tonight we will be having a chat with some of the winners of this year's Archie Team Awards. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging, and I pay my respects to any First Nations people with us here today. Sovereignty has never been ceded, it always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So, Fui, what is Architeam Cooperative and the awards program? Thanks, Delia. That was seamless. <laughs> I'm so glad you asked. Um, well, it's probably worthwhile mentioning who Architeam are, because unless you're an architect, it's very unlikely, I think, that you would have come across Architeam before, because it's largely um, a professional association that's like an industry association. However, you know, when we get the chance to actually have uh, be part of a public event like this. We're certainly very enthusiastic about that. Um, so, what is it? Team is an architects cooperative and it's the leading dedicated voice of Australia's small practice architects. Uh, we have close to a thousand members all around Australia and it's largely based still in Melbourne because this is originally where um, the co-op started 30 years ago and, and this year is in fact the 30th birthday. And I think some quite a few of the original founders are actually quite surprised it's made it this far. Yeah. Um, most of um, Architeam's typical members run small or medium-sized design offices, say with like one to ten people and um, has a very flat structure. So we're basically... Um, uh, have no corporate membership, you have to be an architect, and it's one, one vote, one member, all the way through, very simple. And, what it, and we run a whole lot of events for um, small practices, like um, what's it, CPD programs, architecture conferences, one coming up next year apparently, um, research projects, member support forums, and we advocate for members inside and outside our industry, and of course, run an annual awards program. Uh, and the fruits of that program you will see this evening, or some of them. Now, this program is a chance to bring together our members and also to celebrate the wonderful work that they make. And also, as a note, it's worth um, understanding that if you have over 10 people in your office, you're not allowed to enter the awards. So all the people that you see here and the wonderful work that you see um, 
uh, coming out of the awards are actually made specifically by these small firms. Um, Architeam is also not-for-profit not and it prides itself on being open, accessible and generous. It's a co-op, so we like cooperating. Uh, if there's anyone, that I, any architects out there who are interested to know more, I'm sure we'd all be very happy to tell you about it afterwards. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so the projects that we'll be hearing about tonight reflect many of the aspirations of M Pavilion's overarching theme, Under One Roof, this year. The diverse range of projects explore new ways of living in the suburbs, intergenerational living, adaptive reuse, and the potential of regenerative architecture. The projects are thoughtful, sustainable, and demonstrate the positive and far-reaching impact that the work of smaller architectural practices can have on the broader community and urban environment. So before we start speaking to these wonderful award winners, uh, a bit of housekeeping. While our presenters are speaking, um, you can have a look at the projects on your phones by going to the Architeam website, if you wish. Uh, at architeam.net.au. You can scroll on the landing page to the events section and click on the M Pavilion event, and here you will find photos and drawings of the projects that we're discussing this evening. So it's an opportunity to actually look at the projects while you listen to the designers speak about them. Fui and I will have a short discussion with each of the winners, and then the audience are invited to ask questions at the end. Once, we've, once all of the winners have spoken. So, over to Fui and our very first speaker, Anthony. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> Hello, Ant. And Ant, Anthony Martin here is our first cab off the rank and he's the director of Martin Architects. So, we've said, we've told all the um, panellists tonight, we're not going to do any sort of like cringy, overblown intros. We're going to let them speak for themselves in terms of telling them, um, telling you a bit about what they do and who they are. Take it away, Ant. Hi, so I'm Anthony from MRTN or Martin Architects. Um, still haven't quite decided. I just took the vowels out. Um, we're Is that because you're from New Zealand? It <laughs> is partly it. That's, a, that's the end joke. Um, we're a pretty small firm. Um, with an office in Melbourne and also one in Sydney, by chance. Um, so we're hoping to do some work up there soon. Um, <clears throat> we really are only doing residential work, um, a bit by choice and a bit by chance. Um, but we take a lot of pride and, and enjoyment out of doing a variety of project types from in the city, uh, in the country and along the coast. And we've been fortunate to work on houses in New Zealand and up in Tamworth and we're doing so one in Newtown. you're actually an international operation. That's right, exactly, exactly, that's right. Um, but, you know, they've all got a lot in common and a lot of differences and they an enjoyable type to work on, so that's what we do. Um, apart from that, I just wanted to say it was a, about, it'd been a big honour to actually get the Architeam Award for the new residential house over a million dollars. I think that the calibre of residential architecture in Australia is so high that really any acknowledgement you get is you know, pretty well appreciated and a pretty big accomplishment in itself. 
Uh, very much so, Ant, and I think particularly sort of um, with the Archie Team Awards as well, like the residential categories are very, very hotly contested because a lot of the Archie Team members are specialists in residential work, so it's um, the, amount of the amount of work and the quality of work is actually pretty amazing. But um, probably it's worth just having a quick chat about this beautiful house. Um, the project is called West Bend House. I don't know if you could if you've managed to have a look at it on your phones. Um, so Martin Architects House, West Bend House, has, is the winner of the new residential category of work over a million dollars in this year's awards. I'll just read you out the judge's citation about the um, project so that you just get some perspective on why, um, the, or, or some of the merits of the project. This particular project is a sophisticated and beautifully crafted response to a, to a complex brief. With a modest footprint for a family of five, the floor plan is articulated to accommodate flexibly, flexibility for various life stages. The house allows for opportunities for working from home, independence and social gatherings of various scales. Environmental sustainability is thoughtfully considered through correct orientation, distribution of thermal mass where appropriate, and satisfying key objectives of incorporating renewable energy sources, upcycled and recycled materials, rainwater harvesting, and energy efficient fittings and fixtures. So that's, that's the techie stuff. But if you've actually had a look at the um, photographs, you'll see that it's also a very beautiful thing. Um, I've been lucky enough to have a um, bit of a tour of the house given by Ant as part of the um, Archi last Architeam conference and there's probably some stuff in the details which you experience in real life that the photographs never really catch. It is really a very beautiful piece of work. Um, probably worth asking then, like for something, you know, uh, when someone actually approaches you for a project like this Ant where they're talking about flexibility for various life stages, I'm assuming this is the house forever. And how do you actually deal with that kind of issue? Thanks, Roy. Um, this... <laughs> so we do actually have a couple of strategies that we work with all our clients. So it's often... There's a, people will come to us for a forever house and it's become a bit of a term, I think, meaning that they're going to stay there for a long time. So what we actually try and do is we interrogate that a bit more about what it actually means to stay in the house for a long time and how people's lives are going to change. Because we often think in the next five years and the kids are going to grow up and they're going to go from primary school to secondary school and that kind of thing. But actually, once you start to consider, well, teenagers and how, you know, smelly and bloody awful they are, really, <laughs> and how we're going to interact with them and live with them. But then also, seriously, how we're going to give them their own identity and individualism and some sort of way out in the world. And then how that can inform the plan and the way that we arrange the house. And then we take the sort of next stage of life when we've got university kids who truly want to have some independence and are probably still going to be living at home. So then that's another way that the house might adapt to those people. And then we're saying to our clients, then the kids move out and then 
maybe you rent out part of the house. A gigantic house. (laughs) Exactly, you've got this gigantic house. So let's split the gigantic house in two. Like, could this house become two houses and you actually move out of the main part of the house and come to the secondary part of the house? What would that look like? And these are all things that we don't have to do and nothing has to happen, but it can be ingrained in the planning and the plan can adapt to it through a couple of minor changes or more significant changes or not at all. And I think as much as anything, it gets people really thinking about their house, what it means for them and how they're going to live in it and also how they're going to work harder to get rid of those stinky teenagers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you mentioned that it was um, in some some of the um, texts that you wrote about it, there was actually a couple... It was a village, a few villages within the house. Yeah. The and that you'd also known the clients for a very long time. So you've you seen that, that life happening. Right. So the, the village, yeah. So the, the kind of continuation of life is something that we go through with all our clients. But for this particular house, we had designed a holiday house for them and had stayed very good friends with them. And my kids are around the same age and have become very good friends with their kids and they're constantly having sleepovers at our house and we get to smell them as much as we smell our own kids. And we've really got to know this family as a family and also five people. And it's really fascinating when you start thinking about their home, about what they do together, what two of the sisters do together, what Isaac does when he's trying to piss off his parents or play favourites to his mother, and then what the five of them do, and then when we come over, like all those things that happen and how they happen and the personalities behind them, and then how we could specifically design the house to nurture and encourage those personality traits. And, And that's why I like to talk about their houses, all houses, as having this duality where they need to be a shelter, like we need to feel safe in our homes, but we also need to have them as a stage. They need to be able to project us out into the world as well. So creating spaces through a house that have that kind of privacy and public character to them, but also how you'd arrange those along a pathway through the house. So that that informed the plan and the driver. And it it doesn't look like a village. I think that's the thing. (laughs) The the thing of that village and the pathway, it informs the plan. It looks very modest from the street. It actually looks like a, a little cottage only. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, it it is single story to the street, and it rises up to double story through the middle of the plan, and then again back to single story to the rear garden. So, it doesn't overwhelm the street because it's a, a heritage street, and it doesn't overwhelm the garden because I hate that thing where you're in the back garden and there's the bloody big swimming pool and glass all over you. So it, it does both both ends. <laughs> Uh, all right. The, we'll come back sort of at the end of the session if you've got any more questions for Ant, but I guess we should um, move on and, and meet some of the other winners as well. Yep. Thanks, Ant. Uh, so our next speaker is Claire Scorpo and Nick Agius of Agius Scorpo Architects. So would you like to tell us about your practice? <laughs> so we also a smaller practice... Um, We've got an office in Fitzroy and soon to be an office down on the Mornington Peninsula as well. Um, we do a range, we do some commercial work, some resi work, but in the focus on resi work, I suppose we are often looking at those um, existing suburbs and looking at alterations to existing houses. 
Um, the thing that always excites us about working in that kind of scale is how do we bring some kind of flexibility into often quite static um, homes. And even an interesting how you talk, Ant, about like, you know, of, often we're trying to bring flexibility in, even though it may not be part of the brief, because we see as housing as, you know, it's a type of infrastructure that's going to be around for a long time. So if it's built in a way that can adapt to change, whether it be that particular family or the next people who move in, then that's going to be a, something that's going to be able to stick around a lot longer. So that's what always excites us about how we can actually make something that's very static, more adaptable. Um, and also understanding some of the kind of you know, important, whether it be historical or kind of very close um, client uh, histories that we can kind of interweave back into the project as well to give them a sense of meaning that will kind of stay there and be built into the work itself. So that's, that's the kind of stuff that excites us. There's other stuff that excites us too. Like, <laughs> um, Ant put it really beautifully at the start, talking about the kind of the dimension of domesticity and I think how people live and the, the details of how they exist in space, I think. And that's, I think we start out with these sort of broader brush flexibility, adaptability things, and then we sort of dig down into the sort of nitty gritty of how people live and how they will exist over time in a space and that and how we can use a sort of a, a zoom in and a zoom out and a zoom in and a zoom out of the sort of design process. Um, Claire tends to do the sort of bigger, more strategic stuff and then I'm the more detailed sort of... So I felt like I had to get a word in. <laughs> Great. Well, that very thoughtful approach has obviously resulted in some beautiful outcomes, including this project, which has won an award in the residential alterations and additions up to 500,000. Um, it's called Hawthorne One, and the citation from the jury, this was a deft reinvention of the backyard home, eschewing the temptation to simply add a box on the back. This exceptional project weaves its way around the backyard, opening up new aspects and spaces in a constrained footprint. Above all, this project points towards new ways of living in the suburbs by creating a new dwelling within an existing block and new spaces for multiple generations to live together. So I'd like to put a question to you. I was really intrigued by this idea of backyard optimization. Can you elaborate on that idea? Yeah, so I suppose with a project like, project like this, um, when the client who's here with us came to us with a brief, um, as it was to start off with, it was, it was quite a lot to be fitting into a backyard. Um, and backyards in the Australian kind of dream is like, you know, that's your kind of sacred space and everyone wants their like plot of grass and their area to kick a ball. And so once you start filling in that with additional kind of building works, you start creeping in on, on that. So um, the brief kind of even grew a little bit from when we started. So we really tried to think about, well, how can this kind of um, backyard condition operate in a way that it can open up and fill different spaces. So, for example, we've got like a workshop along one side, which is just pretty much the width, like 600 mil, so the width of, you know, storage, but with big sliding doors that open up. So when it's in use, it can fill out the whole backyard area, um, really responding to kind of existing elements and, and heights. But um, I suppose we, we really optimised every single square millimetre of land to make sure, firstly, it was working efficiently and but it also, especially from the view from the house, so it's something that's getting viewed all the time, is able to create a, a beautiful backdrop that can be looked onto in a way that doesn't feel obtrusive for the people living in there. Mm. And also, um, 
another thing that really intrigued me was this idea of the continuous fence as a key conceptual element of the design that accommodates all the requirements of the brief. Can you tell the audience about that aspect of the project? Um, yeah, so if you haven't seen the project, it's, it basically um, takes the perimeter of the block, um, so the backyard of an existing house, and in, we did a whole lot of small model tests. We work a lot on physical models and, and thinking about how a quite substantial structure will sit in that space. Um, and from these kind of tests, realise if you, if you put a kind of static structure there, visually it's quite intrusive. So we tried to kind of um, dissolve the different types of materials into just one continuous band that can wrap the whole space. And so it creates no kind of jarring points where your eye will stop and start. So there is a real blur between where the building begins, where the fence is, where the shed begins and the pool. So it actually wraps you know, four different programs up in, in kind of one band which pops up or kind of dissolves or kind of, you know, has a different character. But, but that kind of intention um, was to kind of create a singular element as opposed to if we did it discreetly, there would be kind of, yeah, quite um, obvious elements in there. Um, and the other thing we felt that did was gave a little bit of a push and pull between, you know, we want to design, you know, the... the um, the built objects, but we also really need to consider the garden and the landscape. And so there's a real push and pull between giving enough depth and view to the landscape and then folding in the building. So the building actual form is quite unusual and it's a result of trying to get the required program in there, but also responding to the way a garden needs to kind of wrap to get a sense of depth and planting structure and, and those kind of things as well. So there was kind of this, you know, a real tussle between those elements. Um. One of the um, early sort of key points in the brief too was an existing tree that held significant sentimental value and so I think almost sort of intuitively we started drawing curves and stuff around the footprint of the tree um, and then all of these other things started to sort of fold into that curve that we'd drawn and I keep thinking about that there's an illustration in the little prints of the snake with a bulge in it and it's, I think it's an elephant inside yeah. it or it's a hat, but I feel like this project is that. It's like the snake and it's got all these kind of things that sort of push and bulge in and out around it. And um, we, we often think about um, when we're designing Outlook and the connection with the garden and the mm. sort of ecology that space can have, like internal spaces with outside space and how can you sort of layer those and, and we had not necessarily constraints but um, site conditions where there was existing deck in the back of the house and, you know, the outlook from that main living space, what would that look like if, you know, we were to sort of put these things in there so it was really about sort of creating a, a, a sort of quiet layering, I think, to how that all of those things could knit in there and so it was putting it all together and making it having a consistency to it we felt was a worked in terms of creating that mm. sense great well i think we probably need to move on to the next speaker but i also wanted to mention that um it was great that the client felt that the yard felt bigger even though it was actually smaller and i think that is a real you know, reflection of your skill in terms of dealing with that area. So, Fui, next right. speaker. Or well, we should have a quick word with Wilson. Yeah. But and just 
saying to the audience, you know, if you've got any questions that you would like to ask any of these speakers at the end of their, this discussion, please. Yeah, we'll come back to you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. This is Wilson Tang from Sonello Design Studio. And in particular, I think the, um, yours is a special project because the, um, uh, it received a commendation as part of the award. So it didn't, strictly speaking, win a category. But even though Ant won that category according to the judges, the people believe that Wilson should have won that category because Wilson's project has actually won the People's Choice Awards. So you are, you are democratically elected by the people, not just some elitist kind of mob. Yeah. Um, so Wilson, tell us a bit about Sonello and um, who, who are you and what sort of work that you do? Um, uh, I'm Wilson Tang from um, Sonello Architects. Um, we uh, specialise in, in residential projects. Uh, we work across heritage alteration additions, new house, um, um, mainly sort of doing the architecture interior. Um, I've sort of, my background um, in terms of trainings are solely in the residential architecture. So when I come out and say I'm on practice, that becomes like the safe haven to, to start the practice and, and so far it's, it's not too bad. <laughs> um, and in terms of the, the project itself, Burnley, that we're going to be talking about today, um, it's quite a, you know, different in terms of maybe it's a, the other kind of spectrum of what Anthony and, and um, um, Claire and Nick are talking about because this project wasn't about um, um, future planning in terms of, you know, the, the house growing and, and, and shrinking with the family. Um, our clients are, you know, decided that they're never going to have kids. Um, they're very comfortable with their two dogs uh, when we started the project. And that house was just based around four of them. And, and you know, how they sort of um, look at what they want to be for the community. They live in that property for about 20 plus years before they started the project. Um, they often host the neighbours over for meals and drinks, kids included. So it was a very um, enjoyable project and process to be in. Yeah, I did notice that there were, there's a couple of like really cute photos of dogs with their heads in the cupboards and stuff like that as part of the um, suite of photos, which always helps, you know. Pet photos, they are, they're a winner. It was part of the contract. <laughs> Um, we don't have a, um, because it's a popular vote, um, we don't have a um, judge's citation for your project, so I might just read out briefly some of the notes that you provided, you know, as part of the entry so that people have some idea about what the project is in a bit more detail. Um, so the project is called Burnley, and it's situated in the medium density suburb of Burnley, obviously. Um, it's an addition to a row of townhouses and sheltered behind the hit-and-miss brickwork facade is a tranquil home with robust materials, unexpected sky views and access to plenty of greenery. After living on the land, as, as Wilson mentioned, for 20 years, the client decided to join their neighbours in replacing their own house, their old house, sorry. The client envisioned the home to be a gathering place for family and friends, but also a personal oasis. They requested that the master bedroom to face the busy road and the rest of the house to be connected to outdoors. 
noise, privacy and access to open space are the primary concerns as the narrow site faces a major road with heavy traffic. With these in mind, the design is driven by the concept of being compact and intimate, yet open and flexible. So that all sounds like a pretty tall order, really. Um, and when, maybe tell us a bit about how, how you actually work through these sorts of things with the client. So the clients turned up with a brief and then they show you the site and you can see that it's the opposite of all the things that you actually need to happen there. How do you work those things through? Yeah, this this project, um, the the initial briefing stage, and you know, getting to know the clients was a a, a slow and enjoyable process. Um, you know, we started the initial meeting of getting to know each other. They hosted us for a meal um, in their single story sort of um, terrace house that was built boundary to. And boundary. did you hear that all? potential clients there, you have to invite us over for dinner and make us food. <laughs> good, good clients, you can tell from the beginning. <laughs> so it was great to be able to kind of see them work in the kitchen, um, preparing food and, and, you know, having a chat casually about the, um, um, the project. And also, you know, being in the house, you got to experience, you know, the level of the noise, the sun, the wind, um, that you could it could be a constraint and it could also be an opportunity for the design process. Um, we, we were able to sort of have that meetings a couple of times. And then um, just before we got signed up for the project, the, um, the house started to be, you know, getting dilapidated. So, you know, could be just a bad omen, you know. <laughs> um, one of the party will just started to, to peel away from the building. As a result, it opens up like a 30 centimeter gap in the roof. Um, anyway, so before the whole process started, even the design, we had to organize a demolition for the client. And I guess, you know, the opportunity that comes out of that is we can enjoy the site as a vacant site before starting design. So we've got this sort of, you know, being in a shelter and then being in the open, um, it just gives us so much, I guess, information compared to other projects that we've worked on. Um, yeah, and you know, there's no reason that we will stuff it up, I guess. <laughs> um, just a bit about the context, the, um, the, the, the sites has um, two double-storey building directly next to it. Um, it's got a fairly open um, view to the sky at the back and being on Burnley Street, Burnley, it's a pretty, pretty heavy traffic and, and you know, you've got trucks barreling down pretty much throughout the day, even at night. Um, but the client's brief to us is they wanted their master bedroom to face the street on the ground floor level. So it was, you know, it was a pretty bold move. Um, so we came up with the idea about how they're sort of in their 50s when we started the project. We wanted them to be able to enjoy the house as a single level and having the upper level as the extension to, to, to the program. So their bedroom, their main living area all on the down... Uh, downstairs and upper level has their space bedroom and a study um, and you know so it's sort of the reverse maybe yeah of what people normally expect from from a house layout in a way yeah um, and the two it was it presents as double story at the street front and it tapers down towards a single story at the back um, and the garden since the project's finished you know really kind of lushed up now so the living area really feels like a an oasis really um, one of the, the things that we did for this project was um, we spoke to the client and managed to convince them to lose the meter out of their living room 
in a, in a five meter site. <laughs> um, this is so that we can get a meter of garden that's north facing and had windows on there. And as a result, they're able to sort of get sun pretty much throughout the whole year in that room, which I think really is the game changer as far as you know, the living room and the experience of the space. Mm. Thanks, Wilson. Thank you. And uh, next we will be speaking to Jack Chen of Sci Design. So would you like to tell us about your practice? Sure. Um, so I'm Jack, Sci uh, Design. Uh, we're a team of three people, um, and, but we collaborate with a lot of other sole trader architects. So for example, Nick from Session Architecture sitting there. Uh, we're currently working together. Uh, for bigger projects, where it's just um, too much for, for three of us to take. Uh, we're based in Geelong. Uh, two of us are based in Geelong. Uh, one is in uh, Hobart. Uh, and uh, because of most of our projects in Melbourne and Sydney, we have a sole trader in Sydney who's also working with us. So we, we kind of spread ourselves around it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you've won the Small Project Medal. This year? And not for the first time, do you? No, we? no. You're, is this the second time you've won the small project? Yeah. Or, yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> and um, for a really interesting little project, the Butcher Shop Convert. So, with the Small Project Award, all entries under the size of 80 square metres or 150,000 project cost are eligible to win this medal and an award must be given in this category. The award um, needs, uh, the sorry, judging criteria is showing innovation within the constraints of space and budget um, by developing a complexity and invent inventiveness in small design. So with the butcher shop convert, which is actually your own office, isn't it, in Geelong? Yeah. Jury citation described the project. Through minimal intervention and deft manipulation of the existing building fabric, this project in Geelong is reimagined to provide a range of new flexible programs, all achieved within 30 square metres and an extremely tight budget of $23,000. The project is also generous beyond its title, providing a playfulness and visual interest for passers-by engaging with the street both during the day and at night, unhindered by spatial or budget constraints, and due to the project's inventiveness and urban generosity, the jury strongly agreed that they are des a deserving winner of this year's Small Project Medal. So, um, yeah, this project was for your own office in Geelong, and you describe how the project has allowed you to explore ways to have coexisting, have a coexisting public office, shop, and private residence all in the same space. Um, so, what's this space like to work and live in? Has it been successful for you? Uh, yes, it's awesome. Uh, I like to think so. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so it's a. Uh, it's a work in progress. So this is only a stage one of the two stage um, that we're doing. So um, what I want the uh, small metal for is just for the shop, uh, the shop and the office bit. Uh, hopefully, touch base, uh, touch wood in uh, next year. We'll do stage two, which is the house to the back. Um, yeah, I guess um, in the existing condition, it's it's quite 
it's a butcher shop, and so it's never designed for 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 living. And so there's like no windows. There's no full on hundred percent built upon area. No no garden spaces. Um, so we um, but. We love it because we see the potential of being a shopfront, uh, full glaze, fully glazed shopfronts, and uh, I guess always on my wish list is to have a sign of my office. On, I can put it on the on the glass front. <laughs> people will walk by, so I managed to take that off with this project. So I'm really happy about that. Um, and then, yeah, I guess the um, we actually took over from a previous owner who attempted to convert it to a house. Unfortunately, um, it wasn't done very well, I guess, and all the rooms are uh, with no windows. All the rooms are in complete darkness. So first, I guess the big thing we did was try to open up um, the walls to the rooms. Um, so we just did like an operable wall section that opens up, that displays the um, architectural models to the streets. Um, I guess is in a way just to, um, as everyone says, try to animate the streetscape, make it interesting during the day. And then at night when it closes down, we still want to put on some nice lighting to the shopfront. I'm also trying our hands into uh, furniture design. So we have our products on that meter deep of um, shopfront space. Uh, so during the night, it it's also... It's almost like a furniture insert, isn't it? It's like a sort of transformative piece of furniture in a way, isn't it? It's yeah, yeah. It's, um, I think I, mm. I've done that a few times. Mm. I, I don't know why, maybe... Yeah, anyway, I just like moving things around. Mm. <laughs> and um, I've, I've been doing that a bit. Um, and I think it's... Jokes aside, I think it's just um, with small spaces, um, I don't want to waste any any millimeters, yeah. so during the daytime, I wanted to work as an office. During the nighttime, I wanted to work, oh, I guess still office, but I can be my PJs. I can yeah. be tell, or, or less or whatever, you know, yeah. just, uh, and, and be comfortable. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, um, I, I work a bit at night, so it, it's, it's helpful, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and also, the idea of that sort of insertion means that the integrity of the existing butcher shops retained as well, which is quite beautiful. Those those light blue tiles, and so you're very conscious that of its previous history, which I think is really respectful the way you've managed that. Yeah, I think it's always um, yeah, it is the character, and it's kind of building up the stories and layers, yeah. make it make it interesting. So sort of, um, because we didn't start from blank canvas, and so. Um, embrace it. Um, yeah. At the same time, it's cost-effective. Yeah. So um, I have 23k on my pot. Yeah. So that's that's <laughs> how much I can do. So yeah. 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 Um, um, yeah um, I I overprepared this presentation a bit. So um, on my Instagram account, I put on um, stage two. Uh, what's going to happen to the to the property in stage two? Okay. So, um, if anyone has access to Instagram, just go go online. Um, there's like a QR code. You scan, maybe borrow your neighbor's phone, scan that. You can get a 360 photo of their proposal, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Great. Yeah. And if you have a look at the photographs on the website, you'll see how it changes throughout the day to night, and it's quite sort of um, transformative and and does, is very generous to the street in terms of how it sort of activates that, that 
particular part of the street. It's yeah, great. I think we uh, attracted a lot of uh, school kids mm. as they come. Okay. I, I don't Hoping they have no idea what architecture. PJs. I think they probably <laughs> thought we model makers. I don't know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which is great. Fun, so. Thanks, Jack. Thank oh, oh, yeah. Okay. Our last speaker. So we've got Ross. Um, so, Ross, would you like to tell us something about your practice at Gilby and Brewing and Architects? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Ross uh, from Gilby Brewing Architecture. Over there is Anna. I'm going to point her out. Anna Gilby in the red. Um, that's our office assistant over there called Albie. Uh, we have another office assistant who's actually uh, a graduate architect who's been with us for about eight years or so now, Xing Hei Ho, who isn't here tonight, but worked tirelessly on, on the project that we won the awards for. So, um, yeah, so that's us. Great. So the project um, actually cleaned up in the awards, in the Archie Awards this year. You won three awards, the Commercial, Community and Public Award, Sustainability Medal and the Archie Medal. So that was for Spring Bay Mill in Tasmania, which was a former wood chip mill regenerated into a culture and environment oriented events venue. So um, an edited version of those three citations. Um, a series of spaces have been carefully interwoven into the existing infrastructure of the site, paying tribute to the mill's past life and architectural language. The design response deliberately reflects the historical use of the site in order to highlight its rejuvenation and use as a, flat, a platform for the client's environmental and cultural advocacy. The site's intent has been equally supported by landscape interventions that stitch the various parts to define a collective whole. The stage transformation of this vast site into a malleable events venue embraces principles of loose fit, long life and low energy with a clear commitment to engendering positive environmental, social and economic outcomes for generations to come. So a very worthy winner of the Arcate Medal, I think, in terms of um, the ambitions of this project. So Ross, this project is already highly awarded, having recently won a National Sustainable Architecture Award this year. Congratulations. In addition to two named awards and a public architecture award in Tasmania. The project is hugely ambitious and the long-term collaboration between the architect and client is a key to the project's success. Would you agree with that? And can you give us a brief overview of that collaborative process? Yeah, well, thanks for the citation, by the way. Beautifully <laughs> written, whoever did that. Um, yeah, totally agree. Uh, the relationship with the client was vital. Um, the client's name is Graham Wood and his partner, Anna Cernias. Uh, Graham bought the wood chip mill in 2013 as a political act, an, an environmental act actually. Um, he is an interesting person. He, is a, he, he describes himself as a philanthropist. He made all his money through the online um, booking thing called What If? Um, and he sold that, made many millions and then has subsequently invested that money into environmental causes primarily, um, among other things. <clears throat> um, so the wood chip mill was closing down and that was a result of um, the collapse of the industry because the industry got 
incredibly greedy over four decades and it collapsed. Graham jumped on it and somehow bought this wood chip mill. There's a whole backstory to that. Um, and I think our feeling was that initially, and I've never really had a close conversation with Graham about this, so I don't know for certain, but I don't think he ever had necessarily an ambition to turn it into what he's turned it into. He initially bought it because he wanted to stop old growth forest logging in southern Tasmania and he achieved that amazingly. And then he shut this place down. He, he basically trashed the joint and, and made a point of the fact that he trashed the joint so it could never be opened as a wood chip mill again. Um, and we happened to meet him in 2013 with, with a bit of luck. We were doing a project at Mona, the old uh, museum of old and new art. Um, and we just happened to be in the right place at the right time and did a uh, a master plan for him, uh, which was really, again, I think a political move. I think he, he wanted a master plan to sort of suggest that he was going to do something mm -hmm. and to get people off his back because um, they were talking about forcibly acquiring the mill back off him and all sorts of crazy things. So we did this master plan without really a brief and then were thrust in front of the, the media. This was in 2013 telling everyone about our wonderful master plan. And then it sort of all went quiet for a long period of time and other designers got involved and they took it in a few different directions. Eventually the project made its way back to us in about 20, uh, 2018, give or take. Having gone through all these kind of different iterations and he'd finally kind of worked out roughly what he wanted to do. Um, and he has a board around him as well, I should say, and, and those board members were recognising that the direction he was taking, in it, uh, taking it in at the time where there was no architect involved, there was just some builders who were making design decisions, <coughs> in inverted commas. Um, and they, the board got us involved again and actually I would say our relationship with that board was really vital to the success of the project, more so at that time with him. But as soon as we got momentum with the project and developing a new master plan and a series of kind of parts of the project were being built, he got much more involved again. And then that relationship with him became really, really important. Um, so again, there's, it's not just a, a kind of thing between us and Graham, but there's Graham's partner, there's the board, there's all of the other people that were involved in the project along the way as well. Um. You mentioned that much of the project budget being expended on ongoing site repair and revegetation, this impacted the approach to the, to the design of the buildings. You, and you mentioned that the new architecture is not the primary focus, but rather a type of integrated infrastructure. Can you explain this idea? Yeah, that was really born, I mean, to talk about then the relationship with the client, that was born out of the, the kind of brief that did come to us the second time round where they were basically saying, look, we've taken this on a journey of a multi-million dollar eco-resort, effectively, and we don't want to spend that money. It's, and we don't think it's a, financial, a viable financial proposition. Um, we've spent a load of money already. We don't want to spend a load more. They ended up spending a load more, but at the time they didn't want to. Um, and so it became quite clear to us that second time round that it wasn't going to be all about the architecture. It was actually going to be about the thing they wanted to turn it into and therefore we knew at that point to be quite modest with our ambitions about what the new pieces would be 
and then we attempt to, do, to kind of stitch them in as if they're almost, in some cases, not there. Like they're just sort of inhabiting parts of this leftover infrastructure that was abandoned recklessly. Um, and then, if, yeah, so then I guess on one hand it was trying to sort of make it almost appear like they weren't there, so you still had that experience of rocking up to a place that's been abandoned, which is quite thrilling as a thing to visit, but also it was an economic thing about making very modest little insertions into this place that wouldn't cost an arm and a leg that might actually be viable long-term for them as a business, which is still under um, being tested, I suppose. And also really respecting the, or the history of the site as well and people visiting it being very aware of it in terms of using, readapting existing buildings. Yeah, definitely. That, and that, that was an interesting one because on one hand you could say, well, this was a deeply damaging site that is sort of... Um, it's very much in the psyche of people who have lived and grown up in that area and, and, and Tasmanians in general. So on one hand, you could say, well, actually wiping it out is the best, better, better way to go. But we also wanted to respect, and I know the clients said this many times as well, we wanted to respect the fact that that place existed for 40 years and has its own stories. It had, you know, uh, hundreds of people that worked there over that period of time. It, it was meaningful to people in ways that a little bit beyond the debate around um, its, its kind of reckless environmental credentials, you know. So, um, but then I think also as an economic thing about just saying, well, this is perfectly good stuff that's here. Let's keep it, use it, you know. Why, why are we going to throw it away? Um, which, of course, you know, we need to think about more and more now. So, so in terms of the idea of what, a regenerative design approach is? Do you believe that this project um, is an exploration of that particular approach? It's definitely an exploration um, of that approach. And it's something we thought about a lot more since we finished the project, I reckon. I mean, the whole place is a regenerative project. As I mentioned and, and you just said, it's primarily driven by the landscape repair that's going on, which is ongoing and will be ongoing for as long as they've got the energy to keep it going. Uh, and my, my sense is they're very much committed to just slowly but surely turning that, base, that place back into a, a natural ecosystem of some kind. Um, uh, so yeah, in terms of then our architectural input into that, well, I guess it's supportive of that as best we can. And then we, we've had to make careful decisions about the materials we've used, how much we've used, what happens to that material at the end of its lifespan. Um, so the accommodation building that we designed, which is the, the only, well, the main new building on the site, we were very conscious of how that might be considered as kind of a, a long-term temporary project. So something that might exist there for 20, 30 years, but might be redundant at the end of that. So then what happens to all those materials at the end of its lifespan? So the whole thing is kind of bolted together loosely and all of the services are just slung and exposed underneath the building. So the whole thing could be just unplugged, pulled apart with all the bolted connections and the materials can be reused again at any point. So we were kind of, by that point of the project, which was the final stage, I think we kind of had a clear idea for how to do the, the new bits of architecture in amongst this regenerative project. So mm. something now we've thought about a lot as we've entered awards and talked to people more about it. And I think probably something we're 
very interested in in our practice long term. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think it's a very deserving um, winner of the Archie Team Medal and I think there are a lot of lessons for architects and practitioners in Australia in terms of um, sustainable, regenerative approach. I think building can be so um, unsustainable and destructive and there are so many ways that you've approached that project. There are many lessons for all of us. So, thank you. Thanks, Tila. So... Um, Thank you all for talking about your projects. We'd like now to take questions from the audience if any of you have questions for, for our winners up here on the stage. Um, I guess I just have a question for probably more so the residential architects. Um, when it comes to the briefing briefing sort of process of the project, how collaborative is that? Do they more so come with you with what they want and need, but then do you then input your own ideas, suggestions, past experience? Like, how, how is that process in those early stages? Um, I could start that off, Anthony, and pass it over. Um, in when, our, when we have our sort of meet and greet with clients, um, one of our sort of things we always talk about is <clears throat> it's very, very unusual for us to have a client that comes with a very detailed brief. They don't start the process really with much more than how many bedrooms and bathrooms they sort of want. And we reassure them that that's completely fine and completely normal and we have to start somewhere. But it also gives us the opportunity to talk about the brief as actually been a, a, a two-way sort of communication because the brief is in part what the clients want for the project, but it's also what you want for the project as well. So it's a really good opportunity through the briefing process to actually have that two-way conversation. And then from that, you develop a lot of complexity and ideas and, and genuine sort of conversation about what the project wants to be. Um, yeah, I think Anthony probably um, kind of summarises how, you know, when clients approaches us in the first meeting as well, in terms of the brief, it's usually very broad. Um, and it will take two or three meetings for us to tease it out of them, exactly kind of what they refer to. Um, I guess, you know, I certainly sort of react to a lot of the terminologies that they use. Um, in a way that, you know, I sort of started off on a basis that they are generic and I need to know how, what they refer to as, you know, alfresco, you know, whatever that is. Even the kitchen. Uh, I think the kitchens is always an interesting point for us um, because, I mean, I like to cook and most of our clients like to cook <laughs> just by chance. Um, so it, it, it kind of, I find it's a, a, an easy way to start the conversation as far as, for me to imagine how they use the kitchen, how they use the living room, dining room, et cetera, et cetera. And, and from there, it sort of gives me, an, I guess, a vision in a way how I think they might want the new house to be in a way. Um, and yeah, often it's a 50-50. It's a you either get it right or you get it wrong and you try again. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully better answer 50-50. <laughs> 
Yeah, I suppose, yeah. We always get presented with almost a dot point kind of brief of like, you know, it's a, it's a shopping list with a budget strapped on it as well. Um, and it is a journey, I think, to truly try and unpack what, what they mean by that. We often use a tool where we kind of talk them through or get them to write a day in the life of, you know, their every day to try and really understand the moments that they have um, and the things that we can expand on and how they live. Because, yeah, everyone lives differently. Some people, kitchen is nothing. Some, you know, uh, it's a huge part of, of my everyday. But um, that's a tool we use to try and really get them to think about how they live and, and the elements that are important. The other thing that's always really important that I think clients don't really think about is, is you're not just working with a client, you're working with a site. And so what is the brief that that site requires and how can we be more responsive to the site? Because I think they're the, the main two elements that come together uh, what are the moments in the site that could be better enjoyed and how can that facilitate the quality of, of the, the owners and, and how they can kind of respond to that and, and enhance the way they live on that, on that particular place. Um, yeah, I'll add to that. We also start pretty early sort of tabulating... Um, we split it into two in our, first, in our early, even in the initial kind of fee proposal thing about what people tell us. And we start to break things down into sort of qualitative and quantitative qualities. So, you know, yeah, you've got your four bedrooms and this, that and the other. And then also, you know, some people like dark houses, some people like light houses. And, and that helps us develop, I guess, principles that are rooted in, in what they're interested in, how they want to live. And then, yeah, the day in the life thing is helps us get to that sort of next level of sort of the idiosyncrasies of how people exist and how they go about their sort of daily lives. And, and so that forms a really strong basis for us to communicate with them back and forth about, you know, we've done this because, um, you know, we've been speaking about this quality of light or something that you're interested in or materiality or connection to the garden. And so that our responses are sort of couched in things that they've told us about themselves. So it's not us just coming up with something and saying, you know, this is how we want you to live. Um, it's, a, it's a, you know, we try to push, push back as much as possible and get things back from them in terms of a dialogue. Um, I do residential as well. Yep, I'll jump in. Um, I think same, same. Uh, so uh, hearing the client's brief, sometimes I guess they, for me, after the first meetup, I quickly generate options for me. I feel like some clients putting things in words doesn't really translate to what they actually want. And so by putting, uh, I work in three dimension very quickly from the very first meeting is 3Ds. So giving the options when they can see this, the space. I could get it totally wrong, but they can at least tell me you're totally wrong. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but it, you know, it's it, it, it's a uh, yeah. Um, but by giving them options, and also that will help me to um, start channeling to a particular direction. Um, I think for me, at least, I'm bad with words, so uh, pictures and and presentations. Um, uh, a lot more powerful for me to get understanding. Um, yeah. Hi, guys. <clears throat> um, 
I'm just fascinated by the creative process. And you get the briefing from your client, but then you've got to go away and come up with ideas and how to resolve their problems. And there's a whole creative process in that that I find fascinating. I love the work that architects do. Um, but when the ideas came to us from Nick and Claire on our project, we just loved the ideas. And I just was always left scratching my head saying, how'd they come up with that idea? It's just so good. So how do you come up with ideas? <laughs> How do, we, how do we come up with ideas? We do a lot of um, sketching, drawing, model making. Um, but I suppose those initial kind of conversations are always the important ones. And I think, you know, that the first question of how we kind of, it is how you kind of pull the brief apart a little bit. And um, we often start the design process of not doing the whole, but starting with vignettes. So kind of starting with just a kind of drawing, whether it be a little section, which works well for our brains. Um, of spatial qualities that we think will be strong and inform the project. And from those collection of spaces is how we then group them together and kind of fold them into kind of a clear concept. Um, we use a lot of physical models in our office and um, I suppose we've kind of got the idea that if, if, some, if an idea is strong enough that it can be kind of built out of a white card model, then there's a tangibility to the kind of design that's, that's able to be kind of... Um, that's clear and able to be communicated. Um, so that helps us test out that idea to see whether it has strength and it can be um, something that can hold the project together. Um, I always start with a pile of books of stuff other people have done to try and um, see if, you know, I guess just see how other people approach similar problems and see if those can transplant and um, evolve and adapt into what we're doing. I guess a sort of precedent thing from the student days of going out and looking at other um, architects and how they have approached similar problems. Sometimes it doesn't come from architecture. You know, so often sometimes really interesting answers come from other places, and that's where you sort of you know it's really exciting. Um, but it can be pretty challenging. Sometimes you don't find. Uh, a particular architect is leading you in the right direction um, and you need to put them down and uh, pick up another book. So end up with a pretty big pile by the end. And um, yeah, I like the sort of, the what's the saying? You sort of stand on the shoulders of those who've come before you. So really just, yeah, having a look at um, other people. And I guess over a career, hopefully that evolves into a particular approach and something that's sort of rooted in where you are and what you're doing, but it's come off uh, research and looking into other things. So, um, I always say that designing a house is just like a million decisions and the world's biggest shopping trip you're ever going to go on, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you just sort of start with these big decisions and hopefully it's right and then you get on to the next decision and then the next one. But then the other way I've been thinking about it recently, and this is probably a bit more contentious, except I heard Glenn Merkitt say he does the same thing, which made me feel much better about it, <laughs> was when you get to that design point, is it your house in Hawthorne, is it? Right. Clear and Nick might be the same. You sort of start this extension on a house in Hawthorne and you're like, okay, I know kind of where this is going and what the brief is and it's feeling pretty good. 
But then, you know, you get to a point and you're like, shit, I wish this was my house now, <laughs> right? Because the, the design's got to a point where you, you feel like it's really good and now you can see yourself there and you want it to be your own. And that often, for good or for bad, is a value that sort of leads my design process. Um, I uh, I think I mean for, from um, in terms of uh, in my practice um, we speculate I guess is is the word that I probably choose here because um, you know like we when we start a design process we might have only met the client two or three times and you know you try to predict how they live out of that three short encounters. Um, the conversation between myself and my partner um, in terms of, you know, like building up this, this image of our client, really, um, who, who our client is, you know, what they like, what their hobbies, and, and you know, from there, it just projects this image of, of what we think how they might want to live. And, and then, you know, I'm probably more of the, the, the devil's advocate most, most of the time. They always throw things that I think will elevate the way our clients would live and make their life more effortless, whereas my partner is probably more on the safer side where she'll pull me back. Um, so, you know, out of that, you sort of find this really good dynamic and, and um, yeah, the idea is born, I guess, out of that, that whole process. Um, and as far as the, what, I think that's, that's as far as, you know, coming up with the ideas and then there's all translating that into something that's tangible, which, you know, Claire and Nick mentioned about physical models. Um, we, we started off with a lot of sketches, like hand sketches. And then um, from that, it sort of translates into a three-dimensional model. Um, and, you know, trying to capture what we had in the, in the hand sketches in the physical model, in the 3D models um, that then, you know, get presented to our clients. I don't, I don't know if I've got anything to add to this. I mean, we just draw. We just start drawing. And then we... I don't know. What do we do, Anna? We draw and when we, then we kind of self-critique. I think Nick's right. Like, drawing upon things that have occurred before, whether that be art or other architects. And I think we hold a mental inventory of those things, even if we can't name the particular project or the architect but you sort of remember something you might have visited or something or a kind of feeling you're going for and I don't know all those things just sort of bubble away and then there's the brief of course and, and trying to kind of analyse that and be really kind of methodical about how you approach that um, I don't know I, I, don't, we haven't got, I don't know if we have a clear method but we, we just sort of start and all those things kind of come together and we we kind of generate something. And then once we've generated something, then we, then we kind of try and be clear about what it is that we've generated so that there's a clear narrative to communicate to others. I think that's really important that it's not somehow, even though the process might be a bit um, mysterious, that, that the outcome's not so. I was just going to add a comment rather than a question, but um, I think it's, it's, it's a, perhaps people don't realise how much part of the design process the client is, that no matter what um, all these different architects have come up with, no matter how you come up with it, you still have to go back and bounce it off the client. 
because if it doesn't fly with them, it's not going to fly. And there's no project unless it's their project. And I think maybe um, it's a lot of people outside that sort of process don't realise how integral they are to, to the work and also how probably hard work do you think the... It's actually clients have to put in a lot more hard work than maybe what they expect, perhaps? Definitely the, the better outcomes occur when the clients are heavily invested in those early stages. You can really tell. And, you know, like for West Bend House, I'd have phone calls with Rebecca at 8.30 at night and she's got the tape measure out going, I really think, Anthony, you know, like an extra 10 centimetres in this room <laughs> would work. And, you know, the, the phone calls you take because that person is so invested at that starting phase, you know that they're... They're heavily invested and they're going to, they're going to see it through. I think there's sort of definitely an analogue to the way that now that I think about sort of architectural education and the studio model where you're just presenting work constantly to your tutors, it's almost like your tutors are just your client. And so it's that continuous dialogue of presenting something, getting feedback, going, adjusting it. So there's almost kind of like a 50-50 split in terms of how it, how it generates, you go away and you find more stuff and you try to find more answers and, you know, yeah, you just got to we draw our way out of it in however we can. on. Ah. I just have a, a question for Spring Bay. Um, I was just wondering how successful um, the buildings engaged uh, the local community down Tribuna and Shelley Bay. There's the there's a complex across the other side of the bay and it's been sort of successful. I was just wondering if there's any more aspirations from, from this client, um, whether he wants to tackle, you know, overfishing and, um, you know, with all the, the salmon pens and whatnot in the area and, uh, yeah, just, um, yeah, just asking about the, yeah, the success of the, of the, of the building. He's certainly been having a crack at the salmon industry, um, more, much more quietly than he did the forestry industry, but, yeah, he's been funnelling a lot into their campaigns and helping that, I know that for sure. Um, but in terms of engaging the local community, uh, they've been really good at that all the way through. And I think the, bit, the, the kind of reset of the project I described earlier on where they kind of took it for a walk into sort of eco-resort territory and then brought it back into something that was much more step-by-step step, um, was because they realised they really needed to and wanted to engage the local community in the process of um, sort of activating the site. So they've been doing all sorts of really good things like having... Um, planting days with local community is one example. They've been employing local people um, through the construction. It was a local builder that was employed to do the building, um, which on one hand you, you might look at slightly cynically, but then actually it was really, it was actually a really genuine move on their behalf to actually generate employment in the area as well. So, um, and that's ongoing and, and we can attest to this because Anna's, um, who's Tasmanian, her uncle has retired to the local town, Triabunna, so we get all the inside knowledge from him, but all the locals love it, they're really engaged with the place, 
they really like the fact that there's this events venue where every summer there's something going on that they can go to and they do, they turn up to things. It's really good. So there's a really good vibe around that and they have built that slowly but surely just by running particular events, inviting people in on open days um, and various other things like that. So, yeah, uh, which is the complete opposite to the place you're describing opposite, which is just the kind of, um, you know, the typical sort of empty room, yeah. Um, you know, it's the, it's the kind of holiday place, yeah. Was, did the, the Swansea, um, that big resort that was proposed to Swansea um, influence his decision making um, with the direction of the project? I don't, I don't know, to be honest. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what his take on that is, but the, the uh, development, um, sorry, what's your name? Jack is referring to uh, there was a big development proposed up in Swansea um, by a big Chinese-owned consortium that caused all sorts of um, uh, ruffled many feathers in the local community. I don't know whether it ended up getting up or not, but um, that may have, you know, had a bit of an influence in terms of the way they went about things. But um, uh, again, I don't think the way they went about things was cynical. I think it was genuine. Hi. Um, do you ever feel like you get involved in relationship psychology because architecture, people want a new funky space, but they don't look at how they live and how they could live it better until they get into the process of asking someone to redesign their space and then they start to realise, oh, gosh, we could be doing this different as opposed to paying someone to redesign the existing space. Does that make sense? You know, like, people go, I've, I'm married with a couple of kids. We need playrooms, blah, blah, blah. But then once they go down the trajectory, it opens up questions for them and then you get caught in the middle as the architect having to deal with, oh, shit, we didn't really think of this. Yeah. I think a little bit it's our role to kind of play on our experience as well, to know that, and it kind of goes back to that brief question as well, like often the briefs are pretty, you know, clear and, um, you know, particular and it feels like you know, there's no negotiation and even sometimes when you first speak to a client, they're like, we know exactly what we want, we want this, we often get given plans, it's like, this is what we want, we just want you to have a look and make it a little bit better and I think often it's in our role to kind of um, to, to look at our previous experience, our training as well, and to understand that life is you know, often not a, it, it doesn't reside in one sliver of a band of five years and understand that relationships change, living arrangements change, and if you can you know, provide something that can expand that and again, like allow someone to live longer in a space than maybe they intended, that's our role. And so part of it is a kind of, you do have to kind of educate in a way and talk through it in showing and giving them ways to see that. Um, and that, I suppose, is, is the trick that we need. Well, it's not really a trick, but it's, it's what we need to do. Because, yeah, ultimately it's their project. So we can't just put, I know what's better for you, this is what you should do. We need to get them as part of the journey to, to see that, you know, maybe we need to think about alternate ways that, that you might be in this house and, and what we can do to, to better that. So. That's a very big part, I think, of what we need to do to create a great building because if we just responded to a clear brief and did what they said, we'd probably be all un unfulfilled and... and 
clear brief when you um, get married. You're going to be happy forever, yeah? <laughs> the, brief cha- the, brief, the brief changes, you know? And that's exactly the same thing, the clear yeah. brief. And then as you start going through the pro- winding through the process, it changes. And people go like, shit, I hadn't thought of that. And funnily enough, yeah. I think also like, embarking on a project and a lot of people like, you know, we've got someone that's lived in their house for, for 20 years and or 25 years and now they're going to be, you know, renovating or rebuilding. It opens up a whole lot of questions and it's very rare that, a, you know, a couple or a family have to engage. Like, it's very personal. Like residential architecture is an incredibly personal journey and it is an opportunity for couples to actually have to talk about how they live and how they want to live and so it's a pretty big psychological process that people have to go through so um yeah we absolutely yeah psychology should be part of our training we had a a a good client out in hillsville once and we had this fantastic long conversation with them about the kitchen and we couldn't quite get to you know what it was that everyone wasn't quite sure about with the kitchen and the the married couple didn't seem to be quite agreeing and it went round and round and eventually she just blurted out, I just want to be able to dance in the kitchen. And that was this really nice kind of moment. Um, and so we went away and redesigned the kitchen and then the project went dead and then they got divorced. <laughs> Thank you. Any more questions from the audience? I was just going to add to that last question. It's, yeah. I think the design process, it is a funny one. Like you do tease out a lot of those kind of, like it takes a while to sort of warm up um, for people to feel like, and it probably goes back to the last questions, like I actually a bit of this is on me. I need to think about how I live and how I want to live. It's not like I just say I want these rooms and nice materials and they're going to cook something up amazing. It's, um, it's a very sort of self-reflective process for the clients as well. And, um, you know, that gives them a lot of agency and invests them in the project as well. And that's what makes it so kind of, you know, it can be very tumultuous, but also very rewarding as well. That collaborative journey. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's a, a fairly general question I've got. Just wanted to know your thoughts about winning an award and what it brings to your practice. Um, do you find it to be more f- reflective on the work you do or do you find it to be an advantage to get that award to get more work in? Um, are there any other projects we, which you thought should have been better places award projects and you're surprised that this one got an award? Just some general thoughts. I, th- I think that the, I would, for me the awards process, it's, while it's wonderful to win awards, I think it's a very important part of the journey of a project to, to complete it. So to, to go through that design process, go through all those client interactions that we've spoken about, you go through the building process, you get photos done. But when you do the awards, that's quite a lengthy submission process, right? Especially the Archie team ones are really quite, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of information that's required and a lot of detail. Yes. Yeah, it, there's a lot to it. And that informs the type of awards it is, which is, which is fantastic. But also you've got to create a narrative and you have to discuss the project. So 
it's really important things to do. It's like that kind of exit interview, I think, that you do for yourself. You can do some post, you know, occupancy evaluation, that sort of things. But in terms of your design process and, and how that worked for you, entering the awards really forces you to sit down and evaluate that in, in a lot of detail. And, and it's very valuable for that part of the process. If there's an award, I see not the cake. <laughs> Might um add to what Anthony said, despite you know I'm you know not the actual winner winner. <laughs> uh, um I think you know the valuable part of the awards um probably goes for publication as well. It allows us to to stand back and look at the project um in a way from a different standpoint. Because you know, for a period a good period of two three years where we're heavily invested in that project and you know being involved and it's often hard to be on the outside looking at it and i think you know once the project is finished it's much easier to kind of take take a step back and go all right what is this project about what have i done you know was it good is it bad um and obviously then you know when it goes to awards and publications you've got the um i guess the feedback from from the general public as well um, and, and also the, the our peers and, and you know everyone in the architecture industry, I think that's very valuable. Um, and the probably the most is you know in terms of winning awards, clients are very happy. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the the best feelings for me is you know to communicate to the client that you know you've won an award for your project. And I think you know to them it's at some part you know it's a it's quite a big investment for them to 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 build a house with an architect. Um, and the the cost probably never really justifies it unless you know, they're really looking at building something that they will treasure for a long time. Um, so I think out of that, it's it's sort of like a, a, a I guess you know validations of of you know, what their their visions are. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think awards for. Us being quite new and small, it's a marketing, um, and hopefully it's just we don't need to justify ourselves for our works. Um, I hope I'm not sure whether that's um, uh, there's a lot of award-winning practices these days, but uh, yeah, it's it's always uh, just and of course the what I'm not saying it's really just a pat on the back saying well done to us we 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 did it okay kind of thing. Yeah, like I think, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to be awarded. And I do think there's a difference, I suppose, in... Uh, I can, it gives you, in a way, a bit more confidence to push projects. Like, generally awarded projects, you always think possibly, like, the ideas have to be very strong to be able to translate and stand out from a field of incredible, highly competent, beautiful projects. Generally, like, if you get an award, you feel like there's a strong idea in there that's pushed maybe beyond the brief or pushed it further than you may have otherwise. And I think what that does is give you more confidence to, to go down that path of, of you know, of, of pushing your practice in a way that, you know, the idea and rigour in testing things and, and doing something a little different is is something that does get, um, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful when it gets, it's um, awarded by, by peers. It's a, a wonderful thing. Yeah, I, I agree with all those things, probably the same motivations. The only additional one I'd say is that I think for us, Partly it was also about just getting this particular project out there as much as much as we could. Um, 
which is obviously for ourselves, but it's for the client, but it's also just because it's this incredibly valuable and noble project at its core, this idea of revitalising a damaged site. So it's partly about giving a certain amount of publicity to this project, which I think it's managed to get. So that's really good for what they're trying to do, I think. And can I just say that um, architecture is pretty tough. <laughs> And it is a journey and it's a collaboration between the architect, the client and the builder. And when all of that comes together really beautifully and a great project comes out of it to then get an award for that process, um, it's just the cherry on top, I think. I think you'd all agree with that. <laughs> Uh, I was just going to add one last comment, Delia, which is that this is for, I guess, for the audience and the people who are actually looking at the entries, that um, it is worthwhile, um, I, I guess, I, I don't know if you think much about the categories of the awards and what, what actually goes into each category, but I think when you're actually looking at the awards, it's worthwhile having a think about that because the, I guess, it's not so well known sort of out, outside the industry, but that each one of those categories is its own game. So if you've got a new house over a million dollars, that's a certain game you're playing. If it's an alteration and addition under 500,000, that's a different game that you're playing. And if it's a small projects medal, which is, um, what is it, under 100? Under, is it under 80 square metres and under 100,000? Is that right? I remember what the parameters are. But each one of those, it's a different game. Like different projects, um, well, it takes a different project to, e to win each one of those things. So when you actually have a look at it, I think it's worthwhile having a, a thing about, um, think about those things because each one of those projects can't win all of those categories. Like it, each, each one of them is a different sort of animal, really. Different challenges. Yeah. Well, <laughs> thank you all for coming this evening and thank you to all of you wonderful speakers and award winners. It's been really great having quite an informal and conversation with you all. It's been a really nice way to hear about your projects. And um, I think we need to give them a round of applause. What do you reckon? Thank you, Fui. And I'm just going to plug something before we wrap up. Um, Archie team is holding a conference next year in 2023 called Ways of Working, Strengthening Small Practice. And if you were really engaged with what was being discussed this evening, we're going to be getting a great lineup of small practice architects on the stage at the Melbourne Museum next year. And the themes are very interesting, different ways of working in terms of working with detail, um, modes of working and teamwork. So please keep your ear to the ground to find out more about that conference. We'd love to see you there. Thank you everyone again. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. <laughs>